in Cool Books, episode 41, A Blessing or a Curse. Though it jumps back to Lyra's world to follow Lee Scoresby and to the Chittagatse countryside with Serafina Pecola and the witches, before concluding in yet another world where Rudiscati and the angels, the lighted flyers of the title, are about to meet Lord Asriel, Chapter 6 actually parallels its predecessor quite closely in some ways, the most obvious being it cuts straight from Will reading his father's letters to Lee hunting news of Stanislaus Grumman. This strongly points at their being one and the same. Reckless is the epithet Sam Cancino gives him. Lee's fellow Texan explorer last saw Grumman north not surprisingly, of the Urals. From the comfort of the Samirsky Hotel, supplied with food and drink enough to share, he recounts for us the first sight we get of Grumman, not counting that bloody head in the retiring room said to belong to him. He'd walked into a trap that fool Yakovlev laid, the fur trader went on, and cut his leg open to the bone. Instead of using regular medicines, he insisted on using the stuff the bears use, blood moss, some kind of lichen, it ain't a true moss. Anyway, he was lying on a sledge, alternately roaring with pain and calling out instructions to his men. They were taking star sights, and they had to get the measurements right, or he'd lash them with his tongue, and boy, he had a tongue like barbed wire, a lean man, tough, powerful, Curious about everything, you know, he was a Tartar by initiation. So, the bear boy motif comes in. We saw Will related back to the bears, and he will be again. It's this time his father insisting on staunching the wound with blood moss. We had seen Lyra press that into Yorick's grievous hurts, and he went the very next day on a long expedition, so we know how well it works. And like Asriel, Grumman was after star sightings. But aside from Thorold and the unnamed witch that held up the wire for him, we never heard much about Asriel's team. Grumman's team are Tartars, following his orders or else subjected to his insults. That barbed wire would be the opposite of a trap, in a way, and yet, like it, perilous. And so, tipping out more vodka, that spirit Will gets a taste of later, Lee invites some further reminiscences from his fellow Arctic drifters here in Novosembla, where the wind promised by the witches, has brought him safely. In contrast to the remarkable changes of weather, sea, the fog, the narrator points out that it was natural for people to gather and talk. Thus, what otherwise might seem a contrived scene of information gathering is made simultaneously an expression of human nature and a reflection upon these remarkable events by otherwise ordinary people whose perspective we so seldom get to see in these sorts of adventure stories.
as we're told, it was a bad time to work, and so the bar was full. Pullman develops this idea in more detail in the first installment of The Book of Dust, where the Trout, a real-world pub transposed into Lyra's world, is also the home of the main character, Malcolm. But such pubs, inns, are a mainstay of the RPG genre, going back to the Green Dragon or the Prancing Pony in The Lord of the Rings. Here, an elderly seal hunter lemming demon can attest to having seen firsthand how Grimman had his skull drilled, and significantly, he also knows he had another name, a tartar name, he thinks, though he can't recall it just at once. He also can place the event at a location that Lee turns out to be familiar with, having flown over it. And when he flew over it, maybe he just possibly dropped a turquoise ring by accident as we'll see. At this place where the tribe, the Yenisei Paktars, dwell at a fork of the river, marked not that different from John Perry's landmark, with a rock. This one's the size of a house. Though the drilling inducted him, it sounds like it didn't make him a shaman, for he was first recognized as a shaman by the tribe. And it goes on for two days and a night, so it's quite the ritual. And in a simile, which brings us back to the chapter title, it involves a bow drill, like for lighting a fire. Now Sam Canzino pops back in to remark how his men listen to Grimm, like nervous children. And there's another simile here with some mythic overtones. The man's curiosity was as powerful as a wolf's jaws. He asked, ignoring the pain of his trapped leg, as Will will have to ignore the pain of his wounded hand, all about the land, the animals, making notes on every damn thing. And in this he resembles Mary Malone in the world of the Mulefa. Tantalizingly, Cancino has also heard that there was a witch that wanted him for a lover, but he turned her down. Lee Scoresby thinks of Serafina Pecola, but we should also be thinking of the witch who spoke to her after their council, the young witch Yutakamainen. Ominously, the seal hunter intones at this point, it's like a choice, a blessing or a curse. You can't choose neither. And Lee correctly hits upon the reason for Grimman choosing as he did that he was faithful to another woman. Then, he finally asks what he's really after, the whereabouts of that magic object that he's heard stories of. And they can confirm that Grimman knew where this object was, and that he's killed to protect the knowledge. Just like what Will did about the other secret of the window. And, in tried-and-true RPG fashion again, the barman puts in his word. Dan Grimman, he calls him, his demons an osprey, a fish eagle. So, they've all heard different rumors of his demise, of various degrees substantiated. Maybe it was the Skrailing Wars in Bering Land, that is, 
around where he would have first come through the window, more or less. Maybe he was shot there. Or maybe it was on Sakhalin, an island north of Japan, where he was buried by an avalanche, by a hundred tons of rock. Or maybe both really did happen, but he somehow survived them. Or maybe they were tricks, like Azriel's with the severed head, to throw pursuers off the scent. Lee wonders, was he prospecting? Was he working for a military? Or was it something philosophical? Because, like Azriel again, he was interested in stars, had a passion for the aurora. As for his interest in ruins, though, that sounds more like Will's childhood imaginary games again. Anyhow, Lee gets pointed to his next stop, at the nearby observatory of the Imperial Muscovite Academy. And crucially, he stops his audience's curiosity, which was hardly wolf-jawed in the first place, with a very satisfying, workmanlike explanation. He owes me some money. So the talk gets pulled back to the big news, catastrophic changes following Lord Azriel's experiment. We get a set piece that's similar to some of those arresting descriptions of the aurora in the first book. Fishermen, said the seal hunter, they say you can sail right up into that new world. There's a new world, said Lee. As soon as this damn fog clears, we'll see right into it, the seal hunter told them confidently. When it first happened, I was out in my kayak and looking north, just by chance. I'll never forget what I saw. Instead of the earth curving down over the horizon, it went straight on. I could see forever, and as far as I could see, there was land and shoreline, mountains, harbors, green trees, fields of corn, forever into the sky. I tell you, friends, that was something worth toiling fifty years to see. A sight like that. I, wish I, I would have paddled up the sky into that calm sea without a black backward glance. But then came the fog. So I butchered it a little bit, but that damn fog, hard to see through, seems to correspond to the specters in the telling that we'll get later in the chapter. It's that which obscures the beauty of the Chittagatse world and makes going there dangerous, if not impossible, for grown-ups. And at last, as memories tend to do, the seal hunters tosses up the information he wanted all of a sudden. That other name is Jopari. To Lee it sounds Nipponese, Japanese. And as for Grumman's heirs and assigns, they're ironically close to the reader, though Lee will never meet this Jopari's son in his lifetime. The scene shifts now to another conversation in the fog up there at the observatory. This one is bookended by a couple of talks with the sled driver, which proved to be in their way, more important for Lee's search than anything else he hears. The driver, an old Tartar from the Ob region, that's apparently just south of the island of Novosembla, so near the Yenisei, 
told driver agrees to take week after haggling. He's only able to make the journey in these conditions because he doesn't rely on a compass, but on other signs, including the senses of his arctic fox demon. We can tell his compass isn't working due to the confusion of the magnetic field. Similarly, he respects the knowledge he can gain over coffee with his driver just as much as the more technical information he ends up gaining from the learned natural philosophers at their destination. In heavily accented English, or as it's conveyed by Lee's broken comprehension of whatever language the two of them communicate in, we hear, this happened before, this thing. What, the sky opening? That happened before. Many thousand generations. My people remember. All long time ago, many thousand generations. Skyfall opened and spirits moved between this world and that world. All the lands move, the ice melts, then freeze again. The spirits close up the hole after a while, seal it up. But witches say the sky is thin there behind the northern lights. What's going to happen, Umak? Same thing as before. Make all same again, but only after big trouble, big war, spirit war. have indeed heard the witches give hints of some such war they are still actually engaged in. And all this does help give some reason for the uncanny visions in the aurora which opened the first book, captured in Lord Asriel's photogram. It also bears comparing to the other versions of ancient stories that we see throughout this series, told by Asriel and his daughter reading Genesis together or by the Mulefa, retelling the story much later. And in this chapter, we'll get a presi of Grumman's scientific theories, as well as a kind of folk tale about the world of Chittagatsi's history. All this, like the undulations and hollows they travel over, help give texture and richness in these worlds of Pullman's story. And at last, the seemingly simple question remains, you won't go back? <laughs> to which the answer had better be, yeah, I want to go back when I've finished, Umak. You make yourself a fire, my friend, and sit and rest a spell. Hmm. There's another fairy tale echo in the fleeting impression he has of the buildings having been placed up on top of the mountain by a giant hand. Unlike the garish lights of Bolvanger, the windows here are blacked out permanently, and for all their instruments and preparations, there's nothing to see right now. No one, we're told, is as frustrated as astronomers in a fog. So they too are keen to talk. And to the questions of race, nationality, and language touched upon in Lee's interaction with Umak, 
We learned from this diverse group that Grumman was an Englishman, in spite of his name. Or at any rate, his command of that language was immaculate. We learned that he was not a geologist, but a paleoarchaeologist. And why do you need two words meaning old? Because he was looking for civilizations 30,000 years old. He claimed his evidence would be under the ice because the magnetic field had changed in the past, because the Earth's axis had moved. He had a complex theory. We can suppose it was probably not of a spirit war, or at least not in those mythic terms. He also had photograms of rock formations. We can suppose they might actually have been something like those revealed just lately, those strange regular formations of stone on the seabed. And he astounded everyone with his paper on variations in the magnetic pole, which apparently got from our world. To them, Grumman had come out of nowhere. No one knew him more than about 10 years back, and most of them now thought he was probably dead. So, Lee is seemingly at an impasse, but Hester, the demon, tips him off. Check out the scrayling, she says. And he sees the snowy owl demon glaring at him with a hostility the man didn't show. He sees, too, his ring is the church's symbol, presumably a cross, and that helps to explain that this must be the representative of the magisterium, required at all such research institutions to suppress the news of heretical discoveries, should they arise. And remembering Lyra, and very much channeling her, Lee asks about dust. The very word sets off a burst of attention, focused on the scrailing, though no one looks directly at him. And trusting Hester to be inscrutable, and with a childlike, cheerful innocence, Lee apologizes for having asked about something it is forbidden to know. Truthfully, he says, he heard about dust from a passenger, and that they never said what it was. That plural singular use of they, leaving the passengers gender identity open. Just that it was some celestial thing, like the aurora. Celestial and aurora, of course, having more than one meaning, relating to the sky, to heaven, to northern lights, and to dawn. And, truthfully again, Lee's puzzled, knowing the skies pretty well, never having come across this thing. And as you say, a celestial phenomenon is the Skraling's only politic reply. It has no practical significance. Now, like the driver, Lee makes his way down the path following his demon. Hester is close to the ground. And this also helps her dodge the ambush of the owl diving at her. She warns Lee in time for him to evade the arrow that follows. 
He whips around and fires his revolver, hits the scraling, incapacitating his demon, too, who turns at once from predator to clumsy, fainting prey. Even with Lee's pistol to his head and bleeding out from his wound in his leg, the zealot is unrepentant. He says, It's too late. I've already sent a messenger bird. The magisterium will know of your inquiries, and they will be glad to know about Grumman. The fact that others are looking for him confirms what we thought, and that others know of dust. You are an enemy of the church, Lee Scoresby. By their fruits shall ye know them. By their questions shall ye see the serpent gnawing at their heart. That first part, by their fruits, comes from the Sermon on the Mount, it looks like. But either the Gospel text is different in Lyra's world, or the Skraling interpolates an image from somewhere else. Looks like it's used in Nathaniel Hawthorne, of all places, about the serpent gnawing at the heart. Probably used other places, too. The corresponding animal image in the original gospel text would be the wolves in sheep's clothing, as far as I can tell. And to Lee's offer to make him a tourniquet, Scrailing insists on dying, not to be denied the martyr's palm. With a bleak shiver, his soul is gone. Demon disappears. Whatever it is Lee was going to ask him, demand that he tell him, we never find out. Instead we get a remarkable little piece of ekphrasis that's writing about a work, a visual work. This ensues as Lee is reminded by the look on his face of a painting of a saint he saw once. While they bludgeoned his dying body, the saint's demon was borne upward by cherubs and offered a spray of palm, the badge of a martyr. The scraling's face now bore the same expression as the saint's in the picture, an ecstatic straining toward oblivion. Lee dropped him in distaste. Esther, practical as ever, persuades him to take the man's ring. They are renegades, she says, not by their choice, but by his malice. They need to take every advantage they can, because they're done for once the church hears the message he sent. So they roll the body off the cliff, falls for a long time, contrasting with that upward straining of the demon or the soul. And, in fact, more in line with the bloody-minded war of attrition being waged by the man in life on the part of ignorance. We hated killing, though he'd had to do it three times before. I think we see at least one or two of those in the short story. Once upon a time in the north. But Hester again brings him back to the present, telling him there's no sense thinking about that, that these people are insane. 
survives his brush with martyrdom, and Umak comes to the rescue of the search. Turns out everybody knows Dr. Grumman, and that the name Jopari is not a Tartar name, but that he's familiar with it. And when you hear it or read it out loud, Jopari, or say it out loud to yourself, you can probably hear what it might be. Now, whether it's due to the danger evidently surrounding the pursuit of him, or, as it sounds, more likely out of respect for Dr. Grimman's own wishes to remain incognito, Umak won't say much. He'll never know the truth from me. But he does tell Lee that he'd better ask his tribe, the Yenisei. He does say maybe he's neither dead nor alive in the spirit world. So, Lee takes a ship passage with his balloons to continue the search. And the scene shifts once more, radically this time. Pick up with the witches on their search. Along with the strange winds and fierce giant birds, they've also found edible plants, rabbits, water, all staples of long fantasy world voyages. But this journey flies by, for there are the spectral forms that drifted like mist over the grasslands and congregated near streams and low-lying water. In some lights, they were hardly there at all just visible as a drifting quality in the light, the rhythmic evanescence, like veils of transparency turning before a mirror. Quite a bravura piece of imagery there. What we get next is the lovely pun. They mistrusted them at once. Mistrusted. Anyway, in a violent parody of Language recently used of Stanislaus Grumman and the Skraling, we hear, Alive or dead, they're full of malice, Serafina replied. And in a hint at that object of magical protection that Lee is after, they wonder what weapon could harm them. Earthbound as the specters are, though, Witches can at least avoid them easily enough, until they come to a river crossing. In the afternoon sun's rich, oblique light, where they see a party of travelers with no visible demons, get ambushed by these specters coming down from the trees. Their prey flees, the riders escaping in either direction. But in one of the witchiest moments, Serafina, thy... Uh, bids her warriors stay aloof. Don't interfere, she tells them. They become, in short, like us, readers, observing without intervening in the story. What changes this eventually is not how Serafina realizes that the children couldn't see them and that the specters weren't interested in them was not how the old woman tried to hide, holding up her children as if offering them up 
offering obliques. And it's not even how the monsters feed on their victims, but it's how one particular father, frozen as he tries to ford the river, lets go of his child and looks on with indifference at his son drowning beside him. This, and not the likeness to the vampire or the gorging on some quality, be it soul or demon. This is too much for Serafina. And it proves almost to be her doom as she feels the dullness at the edge of her heart before she's pulled away from the specter's grasp by her sister Rudiscati and pulls the child to safety with them. The arrow they fire at it has no effect on it, just as the specter seems not to affect children, at least not directly. Investigating the adult's terrible stillness, she gets no response either from shouting, from pinching, that classic attempt to wake from a nightmare. The woman only moves to look down with a great effort and then looks away again, blank. We might already be able to formulate some theory about what the specters could represent, but we'll come back to them. Meanwhile, the children are whispering, the horsemen watching. No coward, he. He's ready to fight, but he recognizes a parley in the witch laying her bow down, a sign whose meaning is unmistakable. His attributes of calm weariness, sorrow, of a strength hard to reconcile with his behavior at the river, are all as intriguing to the witches as they must be to him. Joachim Lorenz will turn out to be a minor character, like Umak, or the seal hunter, appearing just in these passages, but he provides a true window into his world of Chittagatsi. Do you treat with the devil? he asks first like the superstitious children stoning the cat. But to his credit, he recognizes times have changed. He explains that it is the law to do what they did, run away, or else the children will have no one to watch after them. And he explains how the cities now thronged with specters, whereas there used to be no more than a dozen or so in each place. He can't help the witches look for Lyra. It seems he left town before she arrived. But he does report seeing troops of angels making for the pole. It seems that as Thorold knows of angels without ever having seen one, in this world, demons are invisible, but angels can be seen passing through. There were more recently, as in his grandfather's time. And in exchange for helping them watch out for more specters, the witches learn from, uh, from him uh, more of what led to this nothing in their eyes than these adults who become bleak, dumb, indifferent. And from these others, so grim, so stern, so seemingly immortal in the light here. The evening sun suffused the air with a golden light 
in which every detail was clear and nothing was dazzling, and the faces of the children and the man and woman, too, seemed immortal and strong and beautiful. So it seems. But it's in the light of the embers of the fire, and under the moon on the hills, later that we get the history of this once happy world. With the witches, we listen wide-eyed to Joachim Lorenz's tale of sea trade, street festivals, masked lovers, but how 300 years ago it went wrong. That is, around the same period in our world, the waning Renaissance, the wars of religion burning themselves out after the Reformation, and the scientific revolution hardening into enlightenment. This was either due to the actions of a guild of philosophers in the Torre degli Angeli, or was it as the judgment for some great sin, or both, that gave rise to the specters that came out of nowhere, which might be simply the case. We have to imagine, and it might not actually be that hard, what it is to live in a world where families fall apart, enterprises fail, where investors can't trust their brokers, where lovers can't trust their vows. It's not in a remote garden of Eden, but in that tower of angels Lyra and Will have already seen in its square. That's where the trust and virtue fell out of his world in Lorenz's telling. His name seems to mean Laurel, like the wreath given to poets. He glosses the name Chittagatsi for us, then, as the city of magpies, because of how its philosophers steal while creating and building nothing. They steal from other worlds. Of course, this is just a particularly negative view of how Pullman himself describes his authorship as stealing shiny bits of stories but you'd have to add in the dedicated work which follows that process of making it into something new. The witches must be taken aback by this too, because he says that they know about other worlds. These philosophers discovered a spell to walk through a door that isn't there, or a key that opens where there isn't a lock. I think the contrast with that language from the Sermon on the Mount, although it's mangled by the scrailing, of knocking and answering is salient here. And perhaps this is what let the specters in. Philosophers even use it still to bring back ideas, corn, pencils. This secret is the source of all their wealth, as he says bitterly. And out of everything that's just been revealed, Serafina lays her finger on what he calls the greatest mystery. Why don't the specters harm children? His theory is that their innocence repels the specters. Specters either don't see or don't care about the children. The children certainly cannot see them. So the great theme of innocence and experience is heralded by dust, and recapitulated here with respect to the specters in a kind of inverse form, 
Maybe they are particles of anti-dust, as each quantum subatom is said to have its antiparticle. And corresponding to the indifferent adults, are there orphans, bands of whom roam, hiring themselves out to look for food and supplies? Also the philosophers, scavenging from other worlds. They drift about and scavenge, which is sort of what the specters do too. Like parasites, they don't kill their host. That is, until the great storm. Quite accurately, he says, it was as if the world was breaking apart. A fog came and covered the world. When it lifted, or receded back into Ira's world, the cities were full of the specters. All the adults had to flee, and now it seems... There's really no escaping. So the implications of this are potentially quite dire, but the narration passes over the witches telling truthfully of their world, if they include the story of Lord Asriel's work, not mentioned. Then we recur to where Lyra might have gone, and to where Will, in fact, came from, as Lorenz tells how the philosophers leave some doorways open, perhaps, out of forgetfulness. And then, how the angels are able to pass through. They call themselves Bene Elim, literally translated as sons of God in Genesis, or as watchers, like the witches were momentarily. Lawrence describes them, like Thorold did, as beings of spirit, then concedes they may be flesh, after all, just more finely drawn than that of humans. They carry messengers, just as they tell Mary Malone later via the cave. And again, the spirit of the storyteller descends on a character, as it did on Umak, as it did on the seal hunter before. We read, And when the fog came, after the great storm, I was beset by specters in the hills behind the city of Santalia, on my way homeward. I took refuge in a shepherd's hut, by a spring, next to a birchwood, and all night long I heard voices above me in the fog, cries of alarm and anger, and wing-beats too, closer than I'd ever heard them before. And toward dawn there was the sound of a skirmish of arms, the whoosh of arrows, and the clang of swords. I daren't go to out and see, though I was powerfully curious, for I was afraid. I was stark terrified, if you want to know. When the sky was as light as it ever got during that fog, I ventured to look out, and I saw a great figure lying wounded by the spring. I felt as if I was seeing things I had no right to see, sacred things. I had to look away, and when I looked again, the figure was gone. The upshot of this numinous skirmish, it seems, is that there's an alternative to the zeal of the martyr, one no less an expression of religious awe. So curious as he was and terrified as he was, he looked and saw that great figure, that thing he felt he had no right to see.
You should remember this moment when we come to the infamous scenes of spiritual death later in the series. Maybe it should also change how we look at moments of Lyra uh, prying into things that she's not supposed to. Um, now he also depicts angels aloft like a uh, fleet of ships among the stars. And like Umak again, Lorenz discerns a war breaking out. He knows their stories of an original war that happened immense ages back. As to its outcome, we can only speculate on the devastation it might yield. But he does seem to have some hope that in the end it might sweep the specters back to the pit they came from. It might leave his world free of their blight. If he doesn't look hopeful, then maybe the other way to read this is as bitter irony. After all, for all he said, he's not a learned man. But he does know the North is said to be the abode of spirits. That if they're mustering there, the fortress might be there too. And as if picking up the word uh, dusted in the narration, Seraphina then asks him if he's ever heard of dust. Starlight, or rather, the innumerable points of starlight dusted the dark, almost matching the moon for brightness. There's an ellipse there that leads right into Serafina speaking next, so maybe, maybe she's the narrator of this whole story. Anyway, he supposes that she must mean some sort of metaphor, rightly, um, or maybe not, I guess, if dust is supposed to be a, a literal thing. But anyhow, he can't answer her question, <laughs> and yet his answer is a celestial one, for he spots a troop of angels in the constellation of Ophiuchus. Now, someone versed in the zodiac might be able to unpack some of what that would imply. It's emphasized again right afterwards by Rutuscati, so it must be significant. Ophiuchus, it seems, is a sign related to the zodiac, related to serpent and to healing, so right up Pullman's alley. Though Philip Pullman's birthday apparently misses its astral influences by almost a month. Now, unlike specters and their orphans and their philosopher thieves, the angels, we're told, didn't drift. They moved with the purposeful flight of geese or swans. So shades of Lyra and the birds again. The long chapter now shifts into its final scene. As Rutuscati departs from the other witches, they kissed, and Rutuscati took her cloud pine branch and sprang into the air. Her demon, Sergi, a bluethroat, sped out of the dark alongside her. We're going high, he said. As high as those lighted flyers in Ophiuchus. They're going swiftly, Sergi. Let's catch them. And she and her demon raced upward flying quicker than sparks from a fire, the air rushing through the twigs on a branch and making her black hair stream out behind. She didn't look back at the little fire in the wide darkness of the sleeping children and her witch companions. Didn't look back. 
and those fires might recall the drill used in trepanning, and a bit of the Promethean themes of this whole chapter. Again, in contrast to all that are the lighted flyers of the title. We're told, they shone not as if they were burning, but as if wherever they were, and however dark the night, sunlight was shining on them. We're also told that they can stand upright in the air and surround her, as they do, in a five-pointed circle, lit by that invisible sun, that they're naked. And yet, as we briefly inhabit the conscience, or rather the consciousness of the bold witch, she wonders at these beings, who are individual and yet seem to have an intelligence sweeping over them all like that light. She feels naked before them. It's not quite how Lorenz put it, but it's along the same spectrum of that feeling of awe. But she is unashamed. They are following the call, they say, any or all of them, speaking at once. It demands, it's Asriel's perhaps. It must, anyway, be that same power he exerted to draw whatever he needed to him on Svalbard. And whatever mechanism there is, part of it at least is simple. They are following because they are willing to. In her boldness, Rudiscati bids them guide her. And for a moment, the narrator enters into the consciousness of the angels, remarking on how wise she might be, but how like a child she seems beside these ancient beings. Their awareness spread out beyond her like filamentary tentacles to the remotest corners of universes she had never dreamed of. She saw them as human-formed only because her eyes expected to. If she were to perceive their true form, they would seem more like architecture than organism, like huge structures composed of intelligence and feeling. But they expected nothing else. She was very young. That little passage there echoes the interlude with the master and librarian all the way back at the start of the first book, speaking of the old and the young. Now we're carried forward by their airstream through dawn into clear air. They become less visible, and we're carried along by the witch's fierce joy of those immortal presences about how she rejoices uh, in her blood and flesh, in the rough pine bark she felt next to her skin, the beat of her heart and the life of all her senses, and in the hunger she was feeling now, and in the presence of her sweet-voiced blue-throat demons, and in the earth below her, and the lives of every creature, plant and animal both. And she delighted in being of the same substance as them, and in knowing that when she died, her flesh would nourish other lives as they had nourished her. And she rejoiced too, that she was going to see Lord Asriel again. So I take this long passage to be a, a moment of the sort of joy we might see Lyra experiencing, learning to read the alethiometer, but seen from a more mature, a wise vantage point here. The problem, I think, though, is that the meaning of wisdom has been deeply questioned 
in the activities of those philosophers, those so-called lovers of truth and wisdom, and also by the juxtaposition of Rudiscati with these ancient beings. Uh, any maturity and wisdom she might have is thoroughly uh, cast into the shadow of their enormous intelligence we're told about, but get very little evidence for. So all that is just to say, I think there's a lot more going on here uh, than I have really been able to, with my limited intelligence, uh, divine so far. Now once more, by the changed quality of the air, Ruta Scotty can tell she's passed into another world. We learn that there are some gateways that she cannot see, but the angels can. Maybe that's the nature of their intelligence, at least part of it. She, for her part, can fix her attention and memorize exactly where this spot is. So, an incredible uh, example of fully adult intelligence, the sort that dust is attracted to. And she and the angels make their way to Azriel's fortress, described like eagles. Um, and the description of this, of course, is quite remarkable, but we'll probably have occasion to discuss it in more detail later in the series. So I'll pass over it for now. This has been a relatively long chapter already. There's that description of the velvet of the heavens that we're familiar with from the alethiometer's cover, those spears of black rock you might remember from Svalbard, only made even more immense here. This is the wreckage of some universal catastrophe but it's outlined in brilliance, like that halo sort of thing we saw around Azriel's head at the end of the first book. He's got his basalt walls, a half hill in height, whose extent is measured in flying time. He's got his fires and furnaces, the clang of hammers, like in William Blake's poem, The Tiger. And their flight is not alone. There's angels and other machines coming from all directions to this place at the edge of the world. And again, Rudiscati's temerity on display, she says, you must be my guard of honor. And obediently, they spread their wings and set their course toward the gold-rimmed fortress with the eager witch flying before them. Again, kind of like the, the wary fiend, where Pullman took the title of his entire series. So, between fires and flyers, there's a lot of excellent language, imagery, wordplay, allusions going on in this chapter. I think I've just scratched the surface of it, but I think it's really time to stop now. So, I'll let you go with thanks again for listening. Till next time.